Somerset, Devon, Dorset and Cornwall. The southwest of England has been my home for over 20 years. From these counties, I've tasted some wonderful produce, walked ancient fields and gazed at the majesty of our incredible coastline. But there's so much more I want to discover. I'm Victoria McLenahan, and this is Lola. She's born in Devon, a beautiful brindle boxer, white tip of the tail, four white paws, white bib, black mask and milky chin. She's a delicious little chocolate muffin. And together we welcome you to our countryside. I can't claim much in common with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, except we both honeymooned in the same place, here in Clevedon, in North Somerset. Alfred Lord Tennyson also found inspiration here, and all this is celebrated with the Poet's Walk footpath, which is where Lola and I are today. It's not a long walk, barely a mile, but the views over the Bristol Channel would bring out the romantic poet in anyone. In this episode, I meet outdoor swim coach Rowan Clark. I'm going to be perfectly honest, it tasted ever so slightly of cow poo because it's farmland there. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and I'll also be speaking to Fergus Collins, editor of Country Farm magazine, who shares his passion for the West Country. I have a sort of affinity with Montgomery just because I, oh, I did pick a lot of his studs. It's washed down with a bath ale or something similar. But first, cows. They give us milk, butter, cheese, yoghurt and cream, which is amazing enough. But what if I told you that cows could produce pure vodka? Jason Barber, welcome to our Countryside podcast. Can you tell the listeners very quickly where we are and what it is that you produce? We're at Seabra, which is West Dorset, just north of Beminster, and our distillery where we make pure milk vodka is at Childhay, which is about a mile down the road. Before we get on to the vodka, you started off as a dairy farmer and you're... Yeah, still am a yeah. dairy farmer. You grew up in Dorset, presumably. Yeah, this so is... I grew up here. This is our family uh, dairy farm. My father was moved down here in about 1954 at the age of 16. He didn't get on very well with his stepmother, I don't think. I think after locking her in a broom cupboard, um, oh they decided to move him down here. So he passed away uh, two years ago. Yeah, so I've got the dairy, my brother's got the piggery and sheep. My ne two nephews do horses. So yeah, they do pigs and sheep. I do moos and boos, <laughs> I always say. You love vodka. I do love vodka. I was very good at drinking red wine, but I wasn't very good at getting up in the morning. So a few times in my youth, I was uh, woken up by the reversing beeper of the tanker. Um, and uh, I'll go, not today, thank you. <laughs> so um, I trained myself, well, I didn't train myself. I, I chose to swap to vodka because I don't get a hangover on vodka and I can get up in the morning and we're milking cows. You're trying to milk them sort of 10 hours in between milkings during the day. So if I've got to get up at half four, oh, well. I don't really want to feel too bad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I drink vodka. Joseph's my sort of right-hand man here at the farm. He's been with me for ooh, 17 years. So anyway, so Joseph is Polish. So when he came over, oh. I said, come on, Joseph, you're obviously very good at drinking vodka. <laughs> Um, how do you make vodka? He said anything out of sugar makes vodka. So you've got other vodkas out there made from potatoes, 
from wheat, from rye, and so he said, yeah, anything with sugar, and I thought, and this is where I was with Archie, who's my uh, business partner. We should it's, have mentioned uh, Archie before yeah, now, yeah, shouldn't yeah. we? So we'll probably see him when we go down to the distillery, he was there when I left. So, um, well, well, milk's got um, sugar in it, and my family pay me for the fat and protein, they don't pay me for the lactose, so I thought, I know what we can do. So we had a had a play, and um, hence we have Black Cow Vodka. It must have been like a eureka moment. I mean, really, because nobody else is doing this. Nobody in, well, just anywhere in the world. First people to come up with a pure milk vodka, and we still are the only pure milk vodka out there. It's like discovering gold, surely. Well, we'd like to think so. We'd like <laughs> to think so. Now we're here, they all think they're coming in to be milk now, so that's, oh. uh, yeah, so they're all nice, tidy animals. Oh, they're absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, very placid. So what's different about these cows? They're grass grazed, so like I said, they're grazed from beginning of March, if the weather's good, up till November. They're milked twice a day, not three times a day. Is that unusual? If you are producing milk for a supermarket let's say what you're wanting as many liters as possible i'm wanting as many kilos of fat and protein so i have a different diet they're, they're out to grass they aren't fed that much wheat and things like that and yeah i think they're a very lucky and very relaxed herd how many liters of milk goes into creating one liter bottle oh uh, about 20. So when we first started up, our competitors go, it can't be made from milk because the price of it would be so much. But because we've taken out our cheese and our butter and been paid for it, yeah, it takes about 20 litres to make a litre of vodka. Celebrity fans of Black Cow? Celebrity, yeah, no, we've, um, well, we've got a few. We've got Kate Blanchett, she likes uh, her black cow. When she was being interviewed for uh, Cinderella years ago, she said, if you want the sex to be good, it's got to be black cow. But she got a little bit of the wording wrong. She said it was black vodka uh, made in Devon, made out of potatoes. So we couldn't really do use it that, that much. But so we send her um, some bottles occasionally. Uh, Ridley Scott quite likes it, um, so he makes a very good black cow martini. Um, Stephen Fry, when he tweeted about it years ago, um, our website crashed because, um, yeah, because he had so many followers. Um, yeah, no, we've got a, f a few. I mean, I could probably... Jamie Oliver and Mark Hicks are Mark, big fans? Mark, Mark Hicks is a big fan. He's just taken over our our local pub at uh, the Fox at Corscombe. That's um, quite handy, because that's the <laughs> pub I drink at occasionally. Yeah, yeah, so um, yeah, so he's he's moved in there. Got a nice beer garden right by a stream, and yeah, so that's, that's cool. Sounds gorgeous. Um, now, talking about thanks. Earlier, you mentioned sex. Earlier. Sex. Yes. Right, just, well, right. just made me think of advertising. You haven't had a lot of luck with advertising. Uh, right. No. Well, we did. <laughs> if you Google or um, look up on the internet, um, most 
uh, vodka with most bands. I think it's probably us. Um, one was, it was shot by Jake Scott actually, one where we had a male and female walking through a meadow. I, I saw it before I came out, it looks like it was, it was shot around here actually. Uh, it, yeah, it, no, it was shot somewhere near, <laughs> near here and, and because they had an expression on their face <laughs> And we focused in on What, what the... kind of expression was that? Well, I was don't it... know. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> and then we focused in on the indentation in the grass. Uh, they basically said we couldn't sell sex and alcohol. So that was one. Who said that, Jason? Well, Who I, said you I couldn't sell know. sex? Uh, well, there you go. Vodka. <laughs> uh, and then we had another advert where one was a cartoon with... Father Christmas was driving his sledge and he was being on the vodka and he was chucking out these presents and we were told we were selling alcohol to A, children and B, is encouraging drinking and driving because he was driving whilst driving his sledge. Driving his sleigh as yeah, everyone drives yeah, their yeah. sleigh. Yeah, exactly. So that was another one. And then we did a brilliant one which I thought it was brilliant. Can you remember the adverts where there was a school kid talking to his mates and he was a Liverpool a Liverpool supporter yes. and he went to the fridge and he said, if you don't drink this milk, you'll play football for Actington Stanley. Yeah, Actington <laughs> Anyway, we found... I do remember that. We found the kid and he was grown up and he was 35. We did exactly the same advert... Um, and he poured the vodka into his glass like milk and that was banned because we weren't measuring it in a little shot thing. I think the thing is, do you know, when we first started this rose of vodka, the, the drinks industry loved us. And when I went to Poland and I had to sit, well, they sat, we went to three cities. I was talking to 50 barmen and my opening lines was, you know, I'm here selling ice to the Eskimos. And they go, no, 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 we love your vodka because it's not a counterfeit vodka. It's a new vodka. It's extending the category. You're making something new and this, that and the other. And, um, yeah, basically, I don't know how I got onto that one. What was the, well, I can't remember what the question was now. I don't even know the question. rambling on beautifully. You've been doing this since... What, what, 2012. Yeah, we sold our first bottle in 2012. It's been quite, quite... I can't believe I haven't... I haven't discovered this. Oh, well, there no, you go. I, you, don't hang out, <clears throat> you don't hang out in the right places then, do you? Evidently. <laughs> it's if you haven't tried it... I mean, one of my favourite ways of drinking it is in a martini, because it's sort of... It's very soft, because we don't tow an iceberg down from the Arctic, which probably got plastic in it in any case nowadays, or we don't take water from a bubbling brook or a peaceful wood, okay? Everything in our vodka is made from milk. Yeah. And because you've taken out those minerals, it makes it a very soft vodka. So it's great over ice. And there's an old Cockney saying that what grows together goes together. So if you have it over ice with some cheese, I mean, we do yeah. our black cow cheddar. Yeah, tried it. Have it good? With, with the cheese. Yeah, the cheese and the vodka we had the other night. It, Amazing. It is, isn't it? It yeah. is. And it, it, it just goes, but it doesn't have to be our cheese come the end of the day. It just I goes think it well does, with Jason. cheese. Oysters. I mean, so Mark Hicks does oysters down at the Fox. So I'd love to have a shot glass over four 
over four oysters and just um, a little bit of uh, Tabasco and lemon. Fill the shell up with some vodka and whip those down. It picks up on the salt water, same as a dirty martini. I mean, dirty martini. But because it's very soft, it makes a great espresso martini. You get a great head on the top of, okay. uh, in fairness, when we go down to the distillery, I've, I could make okay. you one. Um, um, sours, I make great sours. Shall we do that then? Shall we make our way down? So we're now down at Childhay where we have the still. Um, this is Ermintrude, our still. So we've got a nine plates column here. So it's a pot still with a rectifying column and a condenser. So it's all copper. Yeah. All right, so we heat it with steam. As you can hear, the steam going through it. Yeah, so we do our distillation here where it then goes through our filter where basically we filter through charcoal coconut shells. It's very sustainable again. Is that, is that usual? I don't know. It's good for us because the vodka is a very clean alcohol and we want to give it a light filtering and we don't want to take away too much of the character. So Archie and I, when we came up with filtering, we basically did it by trial and error and drinking and it's more fun that way as well. Yeah. Um, it's a massively so, creative process. Yeah. So we just come out to the bar and um, here's Archie. So this Hello is there. business partner um, with Black Cow. And I think you had a couple of questions for Archie. Yes. What Black Cow might leave future generations, like a legacy, or what's going to happen? I think what's lovely about what we've done is actually going back to a time of our ancestors where we've got the milk and nothing's wasted because in the past, everything on the farm, everything that you grew was used, whether you're using the straw to put on your roof to make some thatch and the cereal you're consuming or you're doing that. And traditionally, drinks were always about making something good from what's left over. And that's got rather lost in the 20th century. By using the whey that's left over from the cheesemaking process, we're actually getting back to what we should be doing, which is not wasting anything. And the environment's a very precious thing. Animals' lives are a very precious thing. And if you're going to produce milk, you should use every single bit of it because it's a wonderful material and it's very versatile and, and it should all be used to its utmost. Um, so, Vicky, this is our new Negroni. Only got a little bit left in that bottle. was full earlier on. Someone's been at it. So that's the little bit left in the... A little bit uh, left in the bottle, which... Um, so that's our vodka Negroni. Okay. So now, remembering I said I don't like gin, but I do drink um, a Black Cow Vodka okay, Negroni, okay. which is on our website. It smells good. Wow. God, that's so clean and so fresh, isn't it? It's good, isn't it? Yeah, oh. so we just launched that last week. Oh, my God. So I'm one of the first people to... Drink. You are. Oh you God. are. Now, so I've got a question for you, or for your listeners, okay. for a competition. They could win a bottle of cheese, uh, sorry, a bottle of vodka. <laughs> I've been on the Negroni as well, look. A bottle of vodka and a cheese. What they have to do is answer to you, what size bottles do we sell? OK, okay so there, there's your question. Website. Yeah, so if you go to blackcow.co.uk, the answer will be there. 
have a little look around for the answer. Have a, have a great look around the website. Go to the shop, see if you can... Anyone's birthday coming up? Buy a cheese, buy some vodka, have a look around. You can also follow Black Cow on Instagram, at Black Cow Vodka, and also Twitter. Give them a follow on Twitter as well, at Black Cow Vodka. The answer will be announced in a month's time on Twitter, at OC Podcast UK and Instagram, at Our Countryside Podcast. So please make sure you are following Jason, just really, really quickly, because the bottle is ridiculously amazing. It, it is it's a work just of art. A gold medal there Look at San that! Like, what I love about this, it's got a gold top, and it says pure milk. That's incredible. Who came up well, with that Archie, idea? Archie does the the branding with Helen, his wife. It's genius. <laughs> we try to be. We try to be. Jason Barber, thank you so much. I'm not going to shake thank your you. hands, no, but thank you so hands, much. For well, showing me you around. I certainly have. Absolute genius. That competition question again what size bottles do Black Cow use for their vodka? The answer is on their website, blackcow.co.uk. Clue there are two sizes. Email that answer to me, victoria at ourcountrysidepodcast.co.uk. And while we're on the subject of competitions, you'll recall in our last podcast that we asked you how many galleries does fused glass artist Joe Downs have in Cornwall? Well, the answer was five. And the winner was Helena B of North Somerset. Well done, your soap dish is on its way. Ah, reached the sugar lookout. Built in 1835 as an observation post for sugar ships arriving from the West Indies. Below us is a pier uh, described by Sir John Betjeman as the most beautiful in England. I can see that. I can't quite see the marine lake from here. It's just touched around the hillside, but um, there will be people swimming in there. <laughs> it's not warm. It's not a warm day, but there, there, there will be people swimming. Under the experienced eye of outdoor swim coach Rowan Clark, I found out. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Rowan. Welcome to our Countryside podcast. Now, I'm sure I've read somewhere that when you were at school, you weren't particularly sporty or more academic. Or I'm just wondering if that's right. Um, how on earth did you arrive at this point in your life where you are teaching people to swim outdoors? I know, I think my PE teachers would probably pass out if they found out what I was doing now. <laughs> I wasn't great at sport at school, um, I was much better at studies, so, um, so it didn't really matter, it was a funny old thing, there was no kind of emphasis on sport for well-being, so it was all about achievement. Um, I was always good at swimming, but I had something called a screw kick, which is where your breaststroke kick isn't in sync, um, which meant that I could never compete in, um, in competition, so I just sort of lost heart and gave up with that a little bit. But I I loved swimming and um, both my parents were, um, was, you know, we'd swim in the sea, we'd swim in lakes, we'd swim in rivers during our holidays, usually in the UK or France at a push. Um, so I was really used to swimming outdoors. I remember being dared to swim across a well in the Forest of Dean when I was about 11 and, oh and doing heavens. that. I know, that was freezing. So, um, 
I've always had like this affinity with cold water. So then after I had, um, I've got three children, after my last child, I decided that I wanted to do a challenge to get myself fit, to have a goal to work towards. And all my friends were doing, um, you know, they were running basically, and I couldn't run. So um, I signed up to do um, the Great North Swim around Lake Windermere, and, and I just fell in love with it. That's really interesting, because I'm better at running than I am at swimming bizarrely I get very tired out when I swim so that's interesting to hear why swim outdoors why is it special to swim out outdoors you could just do this in a leisure centre surely <laughs> well so it's you know I started off I loved swimming indoors as well but there's something about going up and down a pool that I found a little bit boring and not very stimulating um, and then to be I remember my first ever outdoor proper outdoor swim you know I've always dipped in the sea but my first proper swim was a two kilometre stretch of the river Huntsville which was it was cold I'm going to be perfectly honest it tasted ever so slightly of cow poo because it's farmland there and whereas I think most people would probably think that that wasn't great I thought it was absolutely wonderful <laughs> so it was I was good at it and I was good at it I didn't panic and I think a lot of the other you described that breathing thing and a lot of people I coach have that um, when you're in the cold water you get this sort of almost panicky breathing pattern um, and it's really normal it's part of your evolutionary um, system that, that keeps you safe it's the chimp part of your brain but I didn't really get that and I guess because I'd always been used to swimming outdoors so um, I loved it and I was good at it and I think there was a real there was a bit of a boost a bit of a boost to my confidence in that I was good at it but also there's something about being outdoors and in nature it's so variable and it's not always you know cow poo isn't lovely but it's not always beautiful but it, it usually is it's usually just gorgeous and you don't get any of that in a leisure centre. What about well-being how can I expect to, to feel after this am I going to feel amazing after this I, I think I might I think I might <laughs> You're yes, <laughs> you should do. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of things going on. So you're giving your body a really big shock um, and to your fight or flight system. And what happens is you calm yourself. You calm that big shock response when you first get into the water. And in doing so, you are teaching your body to cope with stress better. And people who swim outdoors find that they are better at coping with chronic stress, um, stress in everyday life, and the kind of stress that adds up to depression, anxiety and that kind of thing so it has huge benefits for your mental health what kinds of people come to you to do this all kinds it's amazing i have um i coach a couple of men who are training to swim triathlons i've got a woman who is uh, eventually wants to be able to swim the channel so i've actually had two people who have got channel ambitions so far this year but also i coach loads and loads of people who are either have always swum breaststroke and fancy swimming front crawl and also people who have never swum before and have either read about it or heard about it or are struggling with mental health issues or are struggling with chronic illness diagnoses changes in their lives injuries you know lots of people come here people often have a story and have a reason why they they've come to outdoor swimming and they just need a little bit of help and guidance to get them started i know you can you do consultation to, for, for media production companies and actors have you ever coached anybody a famous actor yeah so i i did a little bit of work for sanderton um, it was an itv drama and it was more about making sure giving them a brief of what to expect in the cold water and then making sure they warmed up properly afterwards so that cast included 
Chris Marshall and I can't remember anybody else who was in it. Chris was the one I recognised. But I've also done a little bit of work with both um, Hugh Fernie Whittingstall and Michael Mosley who are both, you know, really interested in looking at the wellbeing benefits of outdoor swimming. Hugh has carried on swimming. So we did this two years ago. We did a cold dip on a January day when the water was four degrees and he still swims all the time, um, all the way through the winter as well. Was that his first time? Yeah, it was. He'd had baths and cold water showers. I just want to put a caveat that I don't really yes. recommend getting in no. the water for the first time when it's four it's degrees. Yeah. But he had kind of prepared his body by sitting in baths full of ice. Oh, <laughs> but gosh. it still was a huge, huge shock to him and it was quite different. I think he was surprised by how different it was getting in outdoors. Just a few quick fire questions. Yeah. Best time of year to do this if you're a newbie? So I would start when the water is in well into double figures, so about 14 degrees. So actually this time of year, it's a bit colder. Um, it's May now and it's a bit colder than it is usually at this time of year. But sort of May, June is a good time to start. Best thing to wear? Anything you want. Make sure you wear a hat though, because you use a lot of heat through your head. Yeah, so one. whatever you want to wear is fine, but put a hat on top drink or snack at the end? I'm a big fan of anything with ginger in because it's warming so um, I like a lemon and ginger tea and then a bit of crystallised ginger is really nice but um, cookie, flapjack, anything that's it's quite energy consuming so so refuelling is good. What outdoor swim event do you look forward to each year? Well, I'm, I'm a big part of the community down here in Clevedon and we usually do a challenge event of some description every year. So this year and last year we did a 24-hour relay where people swam constantly. We had someone in the water constantly for 24 hours. Um, and I love that. That's my favourite. 24 hours? Yes. In the dark? In the dark. Oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. What, what about New Year dips? You do Boxing Day dips, don't you, and stuff like that? Yeah, so there's a big tradition here in Clevedon for um, swimming through swimming on Boxing Day and in the, uh, on New Year's Day. The New Year Day in particular is, is a lovely swim. I know this lake gets drained occasionally. It was yeah. drained a few weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that's Any, right. Anything interesting? Finds? Yeah, so actually, funny enough, it was my son who found a wedding ring. <laughs> yeah, so we, he got a metal detector for Christmas um, and he uh, we found this wedding ring in the bottom that my husband thought was an olive from plumbing, a uh, plumbing system. And then we, cleaned, we sort of gave it, gave it a clean and it had a hallmark on it, so it was clear that it was a wedding ring. And it actually, um, we managed to reunite it with its owner who lost it nine months ago while paddleboarding. So that was a really lovely story. Um, what is the silliest thing you've been asked to do? Being silly is a big part of the joy of outdoor <laughs> swimming. OK, my 40th birthday, um, I sat in a mermaid, an inflatable mermaid ring, while a group of my friends uh, swam out to the pontoon, which is like a floating island in the middle of um, Clevedon Marine Lake, and played happy birthday on various instruments, including a kazoo, um, a plastic trumpet, and I think there might have been a fiddle as well. <laughs> what are your top three safe and recognised favourite locations to swim outdoors in the southwest? Okay, so here at Clevedon Marine Lake is the first one. There's no tide or current to worry about here. It does overtop on a spring tide, so that's when the water comes over the top of the, the lake wall. But most of the time, it's a tidal pool and it's not affected by the tides, and you can touch the bottom, so that's great. I am also a really big fan of the beaches in South Devon is probably my favourite part 
so we're going down to Brixham next week so that will be a lovely part um, but all the beaches around that bit of coastline are fab and a third place another really lovely place to go is Bobster Key which is um, an inland diving centre which is is near Froome and it's open for people you do have to pay to go in but there's a course and there's safety support so that's a really lovely place to swim to that'd probably be quite a good place for, for newbies as well yeah absolutely yeah Brilliant. There is a wealth of information on Rowan's website with all the information you'll need to know about outdoor swimming. That's outdoorswimcoach.com to book a session with Rowan. There's a shop where you can buy hoodies and T-shirts, helpful kit lists. There's a really great link to wild swimming locations in the UK, all over the UK, not just the southwest. And there are gift vouchers. If you've got presents to buy, brilliant idea. This one that we're doing today was £15. I've got to give you the money for that. £15 for a one-to-one session is that right oh is it (laughs) (laughs) the husband's here he's got cash it's still a bargain a bargain absolute bargain so what do we get for this session is it half it's half an hour isn't it and it's a one-to-one beat your fears yes so um i do one-to-one sessions so half an hour is 30 pounds and a 45 minute one is 40 pounds so for this session it really is tailored to whatever you want to do so if you are trying to improve your technique then we can look at your technique if you just want some guidance about how to get into water safely or you want to find out why it's good for you then we can do that as well so it really is up to you it's your session you can keep up to date with rowan follow her on facebook it's row clark outdoors that's r-o-w-c-l-a-r-k-e outdoors row clark outdoors and instagram at fins and goggles <laughs> if you're thinking about swimming outdoors or maybe you've already started swimming outdoors brave things that you are give us ears on the socials on twitter at oc podcast uk or on instagram at our countryside podcast tell us where you go shout out to your swim buddies and tell us what you get out of it post your swimming pictures use the hashtag our countryside podcast it has started to rain by the way yes Rowan we'd better get on and do this hasn't we yeah <laughs> I've been procrastinating can you tell <laughs> it's called faffing in the trains <laughs> breathe okay so just fake and forth Just just raining and blowing a wheelie. <laughs> well done. Where shall I go? That's it, that's fine. So just don't go too far. Try and stay it's always a good idea to stay close to the edge when you first start so that you can get out whenever you want so you don't get down a bit now I can talk to you so that cold water shock um, response only lasts for 60 to 90 seconds but it's quite intense so I think what lots of people will do is they will have that cold water shock response and then give up at that point but actually if you can just if you know it's going to happen and you know it's going to pass and you can just breathe through it then you're quite comfortable (laughs) I like this so if I did this a couple of times a week 
um, throughout the summer, yeah. I could probably, did you say, I could, you could probably get to the stage where you do a, um, a winter. That's right, um, yeah. So the thing to do is to keep dipping through the summer um, and then as the water temperature starts to drop again in the autumn, just keep on coming once or twice a week. Twice a week is ideal, once is fine. And as the water temperature drops, you reduce the amount of time you spend in the water, but you get a much more intense feeling, intense reaction. rather pleasant actually I mean well it is cold it is freezing and but the, the rain's coming down now and but there are quite a few people in here more than I thought and the raindrops are just squishing um, <laughs> yeah, <it's good. laughs> so there we are it's all about the breathing a big thank you to the lovely Rowan Clark helping me get to grips in Clevedon Marine Lake in the pouring rain earlier this week. So I'm at the highest point of the walk and it's absolutely stunning. The sun's come out and it's gorgeous. This is Wayne's Hill. It's a bit exposed up here but it's absolutely stunning. And you can see everything, 360 degrees. I can see Steep Home. Uh, and beyond that, must be Exmoor. Wales, Flat Home, I can just make out the, uh, the lighthouse on Flat Home. And then further on round, I think that might be Crook Peak in the distance. And oh, the sun is just beautiful on the hills right in front of me. I recommend Ips and Walton Common. And of course, coming round here to my left, I've got the town of Clevedon. Just beautiful. I'm going to introduce you to a nature writer and podcaster with West Country in his blood. I am delighted to be joined by the editor of Countryfile magazine, Fergus Collins. Fergus, welcome to our Countryside podcast. Hello, Victoria. So you grew up in Somerset. I did, I did. I, I was actually born in Chertsey on the, on the River Thames, but my parents moved to the good life from suburban Chertsey. And so they moved to Somerset when I was two and I lived there pretty much on and off till I went to university. It is my homeland and whenever I go back to the little town of Castle Kerry, that's the place that feels where I'm most rooted. So it was a happy childhood? Up to the age of 10, I had a complete free reign. I was allowed to roam around. All, all my childhood, I was allowed to roam around. I moved to London. My parents moved back, having had the good life in Somerset. They moved back to sort of London. Uh, but we always had somewhere in mm -hmm. Somerset that we could come back to. And so I spent a lot of my childhood roaming the countryside, cycling country lanes, mm -hmm. catching tadpoles. I, I really had a golden childhood of, of exploring and roaming free. I'm very glad to have had that grounding. And it's always given me that sense that, hey, the countryside's always there. It's always a good, a good friend and somewhere mm -hmm. to escape into. What other passions did you have? Were you sort of into reading, into music? I was into massively into reading. 
um, because I, when I compare my childhood to my son's, which is all screens and amazing video games and YouTube, and mm-hmm. it, was, it was either roaming the countryside or reading. I made airfix models. I did lots of gardening, but there wasn't, in comparison, life was slower. And yeah. I devoured books, hundreds of books as a kid. You did find yourself in London. How did you get to attend the London Oratory? Really, um, my... My parents had a good run at living the good life and that whole idea of you can grow your own and have a rural life. It was quite tricky, particularly as they had four children. So they needed to sort of head back to the big smoke for work. So we split our time between London and countryside, but it made sense to go to school in London. And I ended up going to secondary school, which was I found quite, it was a great school, but I missed the freedom of the outdoors and my friends in London didn't understand my kind of, oh, look, there's frogs in this pond. They were always much too cool for me. I sort of suppressed it a bit, I suppose. I ended up in an urban existence with a rural heart. So so I went from a very, very rural primary school, which my parents had helped build, to a kind of inner city, concrete, very blocky, no grass. So it was a bit of a shock, I must admit. Holiday destinations at that point, 11, 12. I was lucky to have an uncle and aunt who had a small holding in West Wales. That was somewhere we would be um, packed off to mm-hmm. and that again was just a complete adventure for oh, us they had young children mm-hmm. and it was just an opportunity to to roam free I, I loved it family holidays were always all renting a cottage somewhere in either Yorkshire or Cornwall or somewhere mm-hmm. similar it felt very exotic I think I was 21 before I went on a plane really unusual are you musical at all? I was going to talk a little bit about um, time spent at the oratory. Well, it, I mean, it was a very musical school. Unfortunately, I did want to learn guitar and I learned it later in life. But okay. I used to, I never actually told my parents this, but I used to take the guitar in to school and then not go to the guitar lesson. And oh, no. So they were... They, they were quite surprised by my lack of progress on that. It was very musical. There was a choir. I sort of skirted around that, although music, I adore music. You know, every time I'm in the kitchen cooking or ironing or whatever, I'm, I need music on because it helps yeah. with boring tasks go quicker. My son is very musical. He, is he? plays drums, piano and violin. Oh, so he's, he's sort brilliant. Of, it skipped a generation. But we used to travel up and down from London to Somerset at weekends and the car, with my parents would always be playing music and a lot of those tunes particularly classical music Vaughan Williams very evocative of driving down the A303 past Stonehenge oh. and across Sal- Salisbury Plain oh magnificent and whenever I travel to the sort of downlands of East Somerset Dorset Wiltshire mm-hmm. the music automatically plays mm-hmm. in my head I've got that particularly variations on a theme by Thomas Tullis or oh, Larkasen and those sort of things so there's that deep connection of music and landscape and I think actually those bits of music work really well with those big skies and rolling hills yeah, um, and it helped those long journeys to and from London go go by, and particularly the, the miserable ones on a Sunday evening. That, uh, the music appreciation is there, but, yeah. but uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm not a practitioner. Let's fast forward to Liverpool University, where you read history. Any idea on where life was taking you at this point? Was writing on the cards? Not really? No. Well, not really. I sort of did history because I really liked all the stories. I went into it thinking it would be all sort of like a degree in Lord of the Rings. Actually, it gave me this real understanding of how countries and states and things evolve. Because I did mm-hmm. medieval history, oh. and that was a, been really useful. But actually, what was most useful is it helped me gather my words a bit and 
bored of them and helped me structure writing. I had some brilliant tutors. They were very encouraging in terms of writing style and just great characters. I mean, good old days of sitting in a tutorial with five or six other people and just talking. And then perhaps if we get to five o'clock in the afternoon, a glass of wine might pop out of the, of the, um, of the tutor's drawer. Oh and then we'd, we'd be discussing all sorts of... Why aren't priests allowed to marry? And there's all sorts of interesting things like that. But when I left university, I had a cousin who worked in publishing. Mm -hmm. It sounded very exciting. So I badgered her to get me a foot in the door and she helped me. I saw someone sign off one day, which said, what did it say? Editor and writer. And I thought, gosh, that sounds cool. And actually, it wasn't too big a step from a foot in the door to, to get the editor and write a bit under my belt. So I moved from a book publisher to magazine publishing. What about the subject at that point? What about the motivation for the writing? Had you sort of arrived my, at nature and landscape by that point or not? My first book publishing jobs were working on things like pregnancy question and answers. Okay. Industry, <laughs> and um, all oh. sorts of guides to health and sex section. And that's where I worked. Mm -hmm. So some of the titles would make you blush these days but they were quite and first aid manuals you have to be you have to get it right in my spare time I did a lot of fiction writing which I just sit in a pub with a biro and piles of WH Smith's exercise books and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote because my flat was so cold and, and there was so much washing up that hadn't been done and there was a dog and several other people living there I just couldn't bear to go back to it I didn't have the success that J.K. Rowling had of sitting in a warm cafe and uh, coming up with something. So all those things are just tucked in a box. There's still time. There's still time, Fergus. Oh, no, they're absolutely <laughs> dreadful. You, know, you have to get that out of your system. It's like sort of draining some poison or something. It's good to get it out. And then I just got lucky, really. I, I, a job on History magazine came up. And I'd been doing some really fun freelancing on some wildlife projects. Oh. I learned a lot. I worked with some really fantastic bunch of freelancers who became great friends. And it was a lovely life of work really hard Monday to Thursday on a weekly schedule. Then mm -hmm. Friday, as long as you got everything done by about 11 o'clock, we all went to the pub. I mean, really old school yeah. publishing and uh -huh. so much fun. I think uh, generally life was like that because that sounds... I tell people today, um, you know, it's one of those things where we worked really, really hard, but because we knew that we could yeah. have this time, our, our bosses, so long as we got the thing out the door by yeah. Friday lunchtime. And so I'd had that brilliant experience and it gave me loads of confidence working with a huge number of different people who were, uh, I had a couple of great mentors there. And I think that's really important in, well, in all work, walks of life, but publishing is really great if you find someone you want to impress, the reader as, a, as an editor above you, someone you actually trust and like. Uh, there's yeah. a guy called Matt Turner, if he ever hears this. Matt, he lives in New Zealand now, but I owe a lot oh. to him. Yeah, he, he was great and he was kind of my boss. And he was, he was hard but fair, I think, is really important. It's very easy as a boss to want to be sort of fair and everyone's friend. Yeah. But actually, that hard but fair thing was really powerful. It kind of makes you want to you trust someone. You, you were very lucky there to find somebody like that because that's really, un, you know, it, it, it is quite unusual to find people you can trust. Because um, usually, I mean, today people just want to do you down and sort of trample on you and get to the top themselves. And I'm lucky. I think publishing is a, is a lovely place to work. Yes, I, I've had a few ogres along the way, but mm -hmm. generally I've found that there is a generosity of spirit amongst mm -hmm. most people. And it also imbues that I kind of do want to try and help other people along the way because well, sometimes it's quite nice trotting out what you know and you realize gosh I do know how to do this after all these years. <laughs> Let's move on to Monmouthshire. How did you find yourself in Monmouthshire? I, I blame Hugh Fernley Whittleston actually. I was actually <laughs> watching last night 
Cook on the Wild Side and the River Cottage, those early River Cottage series where I was working in London for quite a long time. And that sense of, oh, look, you can, you can have this connection with the countryside. Oh, you can grow your own vegetables, keep chickens, or cow, or pigs, all these things, or go fishing in the local stream. Everything seemed marvellous and exciting. And I moved to Bristol and lived and worked there for seven years. And then got to a stage where my wife and I was going, well, if we don't do it now, we're never going to do this. And we'll always regret not doing it. So we, we actually yeah. did buy a bonkers house on top of a, right up the steepest, windiest lane in Monmouthshire. And it well, had about an acre of land. And it, we lived there for six years. And it was great, really exciting. We created a sort of huge vegetable patch, had chickens. And it was a real yeah. challenge because it was very difficult for people to visit. It's quite a lot of, sometimes smell the burnt clutch fluid on the, oh my God. the hill. <laughs> as, um, as another person hadn't made it. Mm. We, we eventually had to give it up because it was just too much of a challenge. Okay. And you know, the idea had been... I would sit and write and do the garden, but life didn't work out like that. It, you know, best laid plan. So many things yeah. worked brilliantly. We learned a lot, but we now live in the town of Abergavenny. We have a house very like our Bristol house, but okay. 50 miles away further from my job. But Oh, no, really? Oh. Well, that's, that's, the, that's, that's life, but also... Yeah. I couldn't be happier to be living oh, in somewhere beautiful and wild, even though we're in the town. We, uh-huh. It's only 100 yards till I'm in the field. I mean, Monmouthshire's so beautiful. We've got the Brecon Beacons National yeah. Park, so we've got all these peaks. Some are well-known and well-trodden, but there are mm-hmm. dozens and dozens of peaks and valleys where no one goes. And I could spend the rest of my life travelling around and never oh. explore all of it. I mean, that said, I still love Somerset. And, you know, it's I, I, there are bits... Of Somerset that you can't find anywhere else and you know I, I yearn to be back in the Somerset levels in spring with all the bittens booming and the cuckoos and all the wonders of wetlands yeah. you could drop me in any county I'd be pretty happy. Now let's talk about the podcast as an editor of a magazine did you ever envisage that one day you'd be presenting your own successful podcast? <laughs> Well, no, not at all. I mean, it's just one of those things which the evolution of how content is delivered, which is a really dry way of saying providing lovely things for people to enjoy. So obviously print magazines, it's not a massively growing industry with so many other distractions, but podcasts have just mm-hmm. had this incredible, you know, you, you've got your own podcast. It's There's an incredible desire for this. I think people feel more connection to a podcast host and subject matter because yeah. it can be so much more targeted to people. And I mean, I've always liked the idea of doing new things. Podcasting is just loads of fun and yeah. with the countryside. Mm-hmm. There's not tons of people doing outdoorsy podcasts. This Exactly this time last year, I went to a job in common, which is in Surrey, to listen to woodlarks, which I'd never heard before. And I recorded them for a podcast. And they're mm-hmm. just one of the oh. best bird songs you'll ever hear. It's a lovely yeah. descending cascade of sweet notes on a kind of wintry feeling. These commons, they don't really come alive till... May anyway, so you've just got this bird song in bleakness. Lovely. It's so poignant. And I think there are these new things to discover all the time. And a podcast has given me the opportunity to kind of leave the office a bit more and, and see more. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good excuse not to sit behind the computer. <laughs> the audience has grown, and particularly during lockdowns when a lot of people can't escape to beautiful places. Well, I've got a lovely team now. And We've taken it as something we have to build into every podcast. It's just understanding that we're enjoying a vicarious adventure with us mm-hmm. and all around the world. So we have loads of correspondents from Australia, oh. North America. We have long distance listener of the week. So we try and encourage people to oh send in recordings of anywhere, really. We, we, uh-huh. we, I'm happy for someone to go out and record sparrows 
in their back garden and send it in. But we've had people, we had someone recording sounds of pigeons in Dubai and send that in as as our sound of the week. And then we have people writing from their gardens in Queensland. We've been a bit confined to barracks, so I have a few podcast friends around the country who record for me. But beyond that, I want to get out to Norfolk. I want to get out to Lincolnshire, Northumberland, East Coast. I want to get everywhere. (laughs) I had someone did say, rather a lot of podcasts from Monmouthshire of late. (laughs) I haven't been able to get out. So so point taken though. Uh, But it's it's a real joy and it's Mm. been so gratifying to do it on um, the tiniest budget and see just how many listeners we're getting and it's growing all the time so uh, and you can see straight away how well things are going with each Mm -hmm. each podcast so what's your favorite episode of yours if listeners out there if you're not familiar with the country file podcast what would be your 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 favorite episode to sort of introduce to people fergus well Gosh, I was just drawing up a top 10 because we can sort of re- repackage them and, and get people to listen to some of the old ones. But I, there are two really, one, one really recent one because of the latest series, we're trying to focus the series on themes now. And the latest series has been about water. Yeah, so yeah. I found on a map, you know, on those OS maps, yeah. the really ancient stuff has Gothic writing on it. Yes, and yeah. uh, it just said, holy well, up on a hill near here. I couldn't find anything out about it. Oh. Um, so I thought I'd go walking there to see what was there. Uh-huh. And so I made a podcast of not knowing what to expect. So it was absolutely just a quest into nothing. And um, it started raining and the fog came down and it was really raining by the time I got to this well. It wasn't the most impressive thing, but it was. It looked ancient and it was this beautiful little square pool of water when they reached and something happened and you have to listen to the podcast. And then... I got back home and did a bit of research and I did find out some stories about it. And so it kind of made, oh, it made this lovely story arc just purely by accident. I mean, I kind of wanted it to be a quest, but mm-hmm. when I listened back to it, it's very um, an accidentally well done podcast. <laughs> but there's another one which um, is set in Martin Down, which is on the Hampshire, Dorset, Wiltshire border. So not too far okay. from Somerset. Uh-huh. Um, it's the place where... If I have to go to one wildlife place a year, it's this place. It's a huge expanse of pretty much untamed downland. Parts of it have never been ploughed. It's full of wildlife that you expect in downland and what should be across the whole of from from Canton and Somerset to the edge of London. You can read some old books and these places used to be covered in wildflowers, about hundreds of hectares. And this place still is, so you can go there. I think the very first time I went there was, was 2006 and I cycled there from Salisbury. I stepped off my bike and there was a cuckoo singing straight away. Oh my gosh. Wildflowers everywhere, blue butterflies. It it reminded me of childhood memories of abundance of nature. So I did a podcast there a couple of years ago. I went in the evening. I drove down from work from Bristol and Uh I arrived in the rain and just did some, started recording in the rain. And all you can hear is this little patter of rain on the hood of my jacket, but it stopped and then the skylarks came out and this. incredible dense song of skylarks orchids everywhere and then i was standing behind a hawthorn bush just getting a bit of shelter and a barn owl started flying down one of the little ancient there's lots of ridges from ancient defenses 
okay. and this barn was flying down the ridge towards me so I was commentating on it's getting closer it's getting closer and then oh there's gosh. this very, very embarrassing squeal that I make uh, as it as it sort of brushes past me I mean within oh. six inches oh. of my face and, That's incredible. And, then it, and it sort of scoots away and I it's nice to capture that but also when mm-hmm. I listen back I wish I'd managed to maintain my composure it was an incredible <laughs> experience apart from a few sheep no one's really lived there since. Goodness so gracious. you have these great ditches and dikes and, and burial mounds and things. And it's oh so evocative of, of a lost people. I defy anyone to go on a oh. late May or early June mm-hmm. when all the hawthorns in flower and you can oh. hear turtle doves singing in the hedges, which is oh so rare gosh. now, turtle doves. And all the birds singing, blue butterflies and orchids. And think, oh, incredible. We are really lucky to have a few patches of this left. But anyway, there's a podcast with uh, the sounds of summer on, on Martin Down. And uh, when I listen back to it, I think, gosh, that was a really fantastic evening okay. and uh, unforgettable experience. If you're already an avid listener to Countryfile Podcast, do get in touch on the socials. Tell us if you've got a favourite Countryfile Podcast programme. Tell us what it is on Twitter at OC Podcast UK or on Instagram at our countryside podcast or directly to fergus <laughs> i was gonna do twitter at twitter oh yeah yeah but i don't know how to pronounce this this is at oh blorange views the mountain i used to live on was is called blorange right. i was gonna ask you i had really good views from the top of the mountain blorange views at blorange views Okay, Blorange Views on Twitter or Instagram at Countryfile Magazine. And that brings us to the Desert Island Disc style part of the interview. Fergus, if you had to spend 10 days stranded in one place in the southwest, where would it be? I would, I would really love to wander around the Avalon marshes. The last few days of April and the first week of May, I think, are the most perfect times to be anywhere in the British countryside. But just to hear all the migrant birds arriving and singing, you get adders fishing in the water and you get loads of really interesting fish species. There are loads of wildfowl and okay. um, butterflies. It feels quite, so. again, that sense of connection with the ancient times there's lots of old tracks and paths and things around there and then if things are open you can wander to all those beautiful little somerset towns villages mm-hmm. for a pint of something local i would go for a pint of ale myself but um, it's a well-earned drink at the end of a, a good day's rambling southwest produce what would be on the menu apart from that i used to work on a farm uh, montgomery's cheddar farm well no! it was actually he had he Seriously? had some he had some potato. I don't know if he still has a potato farm. Probably part of the sort of empire down there. Oh I used to gosh. spend a couple of summers picking potatoes for Archie Montgomery years ago. But I know Montgomery's cheddar is now such a big deal, and it's the most delicious. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of Keen's cheddar. I know there's God. There's a whole load of brilliant cheeses. Yeah. I have a sort of affinity with Montgomery just because I <laughs> I did pick a lot of his buds once, washed down with a Bath ale or something similar. Oh, that's so lovely to hear because we got married 16 years ago and we couldn't decide on a, on a cake so we actually um we had a montgomery cheddar we had half a truckle of montgomery yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what southwest inspired literature would you take to keep you entertained and i have said you can take the magazine the country farm magazine if you'd like am i allowed wiltshire 
uh, within this within yeah, this remix. So. Yeah. <laughs> I would take um, anything by Richard Jeffries, who was a countryside writer, and he wrote several books that kept me going in London. There's one called The Amateur Poacher, and it's all set in the Marlborough Downs area, so a little bit east okay. of Bristol, south of Swindon sort of area. And it's just really beautiful, really evocative of just being out at night. I mean, yes, there was a bit of poaching involved, obviously, but you know, the, the sort of walking through a woodland late at oh, night wow. and the sort of crisp leaves underfoot, owls hooting. And when you're stuck on a tube train crossing London to get to a, an office job, but you can manage to get 50 pages of this under your belt during the journey. He's just so connected to wildlife and to landscape and to people as well. So not one of the, the sort of nature writers who avoids, who has a sort of slightly misanthropic approach to Leave, leave people out of the story mm-hmm. the human characters are as important as the as the as the hares running over mm-hmm. the, over the downs he's my sort of go-to if I really need a pick up if I'm stuck and I can't get out and have those experiences myself but again mm-hmm. reading him you can't not want to get out and just wander and explore and see what turns up and that's the joy of it Fergus Collins, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me on our Countryside podcast. Thank you very much. Oh, Aileen Cheddar sounds good, doesn't it? Fancy some of that right now. From me and Lola at Poets Walker in Clevedon. Goodbye. Come on, though. Come on, to the pub.